Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. We'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 11, and we will again read 1 through 46. This is the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying of him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. 
and said, Where have you laid him? And he said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could, this, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Lord, we thank you that we who are united to him will follow in his train. Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, that you would be working in each one of us. Father, that which is pleasing in your sight, Lord, we ask that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we'll focus on 7 through 16 this morning. No way to get through this passage any quicker than what we're going, pace we're going, at least not for me. So the friend of Jesus, the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, was deathly ill, so Mary and Martha inform Jesus, and Jesus tells them, that this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Then, instead of, and we, we always, you know, you always get a chuckle when you read this passage, right? Instead of leaving promptly to go to Bethany to minister to Lazarus, he stays where he was, right? And we think, oh, it's terrible inaction. How could he be so unkind? And Lazarus dies during those two days and is placed in the tomb. And Jesus knew exactly what would happen to Lazarus' body. It would stink and rot. And that's precisely what he wanted to have happen. So that his miracle would be that much more amazing when he's restored to health. And so we talked about that last time, but we pick up at verse 7. Um, these events concerning Lazarus and his sisters, uh, Jesus proposed that they, uh, he proposes that they make their way to Judea, the region where this city of Bethany is situated. It was a region that had not welcomed Jesus. In fact, very recently, 
If you look back in chapter 10, that region was not very happy to have Jesus within it. Um, it, it, it's the region he'd been when the Pharisees had sought to kill him with stones. And so the disciples are kind of perplexed. Why would he want to go back there? He just left there for a reason, right? And uh, he had just left there. He had gone out beyond the Jordan to where John ministered. Some peace, a little bit of peace and quiet out there. Um, and so they, they questioned him as to why he would do this. There was danger there. They, they questioned the proposal. They say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are, you are going there again? It's, it's passive confrontation, right? They don't say, don't go there again, Jesus. That's, that'd be insane. They just, they just lob out a, a passive question and hope that Jesus will come to the to the right conclusion. Um, they don't tell him not to go there. They just suggest that, they're, uh, that he ought not to by their question. And they're, they're probably not just fearing for Jesus' safety, are they? Right? They're, they're fearing for their own safety. They've got to be close to Jesus. They've got to go with him, and they, they don't want to go back there. Perhaps they want to avoid the cross. Right? And, and prefer the, the new ease they've enjoyed on the other side of the Jordan. It really is not a very prudential plan unless you're the Son of God who makes the plan. Then it's very prudential. Then it's, it has every, uh, it's stuffed full of reason. And unless you know what's you know, that you have work to do by your heavenly Father and that that work is coming to a head and Jesus knew that. He knew he had to go back there. So Jesus, as we've seen repeatedly in the book of John, responds with wisdom that requires some thought to be understood, right? He's just, it's not immediate. You have to think about what he says. It seems cryptic at first. In response to their caution, he, he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And you're like, huh? How does that relate? Well, the 12 hours he mentions here are the daylight hours that have a purpose, and the purpose of the daylight hours is work. You work during the daylight. I pity those of you who are on second shift or third shift. You're supposed to work during the daylight. It's misery to not work during the day. Anyway, but these 12 hours of light are for, for work, and now Jesus is is Jesus merely just saying that it's easier to walk during the daytime because you can see where you are going? Well, I mean, it seems so until this last part. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, this could just mean because he has no light or because there is no light in it in the world, right? At night, there isn't light. And it doesn't necessarily mean him. It could be it. Now... 
But I think it is intentional ambiguity on Jesus' part. He's talking about the ease or difficulty of traveling on foot in daytime or in nighttime. And I also think he's directly responding to the fear of the disciples. He's responding to their fear. They ask him those questions. They're fearful for him, but they're afraid to go to Judea themselves. They do not want to go up. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, we can go up. And here's why, because we're going up in obedience to God. We're going up to, to work. And that work is something that God gave us to do. So we can go without any fear. God has given this to do. We have the light of God shining in on us, even in us, and so nothing can happen to us until that work that God wants done is accomplished. Nothing can happen to us. So I think that's what he's saying here. It's all about the fear of the disciples. And he's saying, we can go up. God's given us work. And they can't do anything to us until that work's done. Calvin comes to this conclusion. He says, there is no danger of going astray when God, performing the part of the sun, shines on us and directs our course. No fear if you're walking in God's will. He also says this, Calvin does, it amounts to this, that the eyes of God will always be attentive to guard those who shall be attentive to God's instructions. Those who walk in obedience will know that God is, is guiding them. So Jesus is taking up this proverbial saying about walking during the day and as opposed to the night, but he's applying it to the fear of the disciples. So he's helping them to see that they need not fear this trip to Judea if they are doing it in obedience to God. And that should always be our posture, shouldn't it? We should not fear if we are walking in obedience to God. We can face anything. We can be like the apostles who, when they were told to stop preaching Christ with threat of severe punishment, knew that they had to keep going and finish that work that God gave them to do, which is to preach the gospel to all the nations. And that God would, would lead them through it. Ryle writes, let us note that the great principle underlying the two verses is the old saying in another form, Every man is immortal till his work is done. Every man is immortal until his work is done. A recollection of that saying is an excellent antidote against fears of danger. The missionary in the heathen lands and the minister at home pressed down by unhealthy climates or the overabundant work may take comfort in that after the Lord's example. Every, every man is immortal till his work is done. Jesus is telling his disciples, his men, that they need not fear because they are immortal until their work is done. In other words, God watches, God superintends, God guides, right? God has numbered our days. And when we walk in obedience to him into dangers, you know, we can trust that he will see us through until our work is done. That doesn't mean that the dangers you choose should be going to the pinnacle of the temple and throwing yourself down. God doesn't like to be tested. Right? But, but if it is work 
of obedience, work in accord with his will and with his word, then you know you can go into it with faith. Now that reminded me of the, the work of pastors in some sense in Geneva during times of plague. Now think of facing danger like that. Think of, think of being one of those poor pastors who had to go out to the plague hospitals that they set up outside the, the gates of the city. And I want to read a section. Many of you have read this, but it's helpful. Read a section that of, of uh, Calvin's company of pastors that describes this time. Now think of the fear of these pastors. And you'll, you'll be given examples of, of failure, but also of faith. So he writes, Pastoral care for the sick was never more urgent, nor more dangerous than when plague visited Geneva. During the 16th century, Geneva's hospital for plague victims was located several hundred yards outside the walled city in the field of Pampelay, next to the place of execution and the cemetery. During seasons when the scourge of disease threatened the city members of the, members of the threatened the city, members of the company of pastors were appointed to visit the hospital to offer spiritual consolation to the seriously ill and dying. Some of the ministers undertook this dangerous assignment with compassion and courage. For others, the fear of contracting the contagion reduced them to cowards. The responsibility of providing pastoral care to people infected by the plague invariably placed in sharp relief the gravity of the minister's calling and the personal costs that came with it. When the plague arrived in Geneva in the fall of 1542, one of the ministers named Pierre Blanchet, whom the magistrates praised as a man with a big heart, volunteered to relocate outside the city and visit the plague hospital so that he might console the poor infected people. Calvin reported Blanchette's election in a letter to Veret, at the same time expressing his personal fears of the potential dangers. Here's what he said. The pestilence also begins to rage here with greater violence and few who are at all affected by it escape its ravages. One of our colleagues was to be set apart for attendance upon the sick because Pierre offered himself all readily acquiesced. If anything happens to him, I fear that I must take the risk upon myself. For as you observe, because we are debtors to one another, we must not be wanting to those who, more than any others, stand in need of our ministry. So there's Calvin, right, internationally famous, center of the Reformation, saying, if he dies, I feel like I've got to take it on myself. Calvin addressed Veret that pastors should not jeopardize the well-being of the larger church for the sake of caring for individual persons, but even so, duty must always trump fear. So long as we are in this ministry, I do not see that any pretext will avail us if, through fear of infection, we are found wanting in the discharge of our duty when there is most need of our assistance. Now, the following spring... The plague returned to Geneva. The magistrates took aggressive steps to contain the epidemic. Dogs and cats, which were thought to be carriers of the disease, were killed. The law courts were closed until the harvest. The sick were confined at home or sent to the plague hospital. On May 11, 1543, the brave Pierre Blanchette once again 
was appointed to provide pastoral care for the sick, and three days later, he returned to the plague hospital. By the end of the month, he contracted the disease and died. Blanchette's death precipitated a crisis within the ranks of the company of pastors. Of course it did, right? As Calvin and his colleagues struggled for nearly a week to find a replacement for him, no one from the venerable company was willing to undertake the assignment. They were afraid. At the same time, the magistrates mandated that because of Calvin's international stature and importance for the Genevan church, his name should be removed from the roster of potential candidates, an exemption that, most, that must certainly have bred tension, if not outright resentment, among his colleagues. The venerable company finally resorted to drawing lots to select pastors for the plague hospital. But the men whose names were chosen refused to accept the charge. Declaring in the presence of the magistrates that even though this duty belongs to their office, nonetheless, God has still not given them the grace of strength and constancy needed to go to the said hospital. It's part of our job, but we don't have the faith. Finally, a young minister named Matthew de Geniston broke the impasse by stepping forward and volunteering to offer spiritual consolation to the sick at the plague hospital. A short time afterward, Geniston began making periodic visits to the plague victims in the hospital in Plainpalais. Like Blanchette, he soon contracted the disease and died. I mean, that's an example of this fear, right? The fear that the, the apostles were facing here. And Jesus like, look, there's 12 hours in the day. There's light. God, God has given us work to do. We've got to go forward in the work. And yet many of those men, those vener that venerable company, were unwilling to go to that place. They hadn't conquered their fears. They hadn't, they hadn't fully wrapped their head around the fact that God had numbered their days. And so they were fearful. And I imagine I would have been in the company of the cowards. And I would have hoped that Joel Linton would have stepped forward as a missionary to the, to the plague hospital in my place. I would have heartily concurred with the decision of the presbytery. <laughs> um, uh, now, we don't all face those kinds of fears every day, but think of... Think of nurses who did in the early days of COVID when we didn't know what it was. It was nurses who just got up and went to work, didn't know what they were get, going into, right? Think of, think of Elizabeth Elliot who went back to the indigenous people who had killed her beloved husband. Think she was fearful? Think she wanted to find an excuse to go beyond the Jordan and find some peaceful quiet? Think of underground churches in China whose pastors and people risk their lives simply to get together to worship. Right? Think and, and, and what difficult things do you face that fill you with fear and are matters of obedience to God? Talking with a boss about keeping the Lord's Day. I can't work on Sundays anymore. I just can't do it. 
witnessing to a coworker who has that coexist bumper sticker on their car. Right? Witnessing uh, or speaking about life in the midst of the insults of the pro-abortion deviants outside the Greenville Women's Clinic. Having, think about this fear. Having another child after, after the first one or the f- second one or the seventh one. Conquering that fear makes cowards of many of us. What about saying the hard things at a board of directors meeting? Getting past the superficialities. Actually saying something. Entering a school as a law enforcement officer when there is an active shooter. Think of that fear. And so there are those who need to hear these words of Jesus and remember that they need not fear, that they are immortal until their work is done, so to speak, right? Perhaps if we had this mindset, we might see our children going into vocations that require them to risk their lives for the gospel. Instead, our children just want to make money. That's pathetic. That's sad. We might see our children spending their lives for the glory of God rather than for their own glory and comfort, right? Perhaps we would all be able to lift our heads from our fluffy pillows without being immediately hit by all kinds of anxieties. If we had this sense that God has given us work to do and we will accomplish the works that he has given us to accomplish. You will not stumble when you walk in the light of Jesus Christ. God, uh, God has assured us of that. And Calvin says, the eyes of God will always be attentive to guard those who shall be attentive to his instructions. Jesus had that confidence as he went back into this lion's den of Judea. He was walking in the light and knew that nothing could harm him until the hour that was appointed. So Jesus bid those fearful disciples, come along, come along, let's go. Um, God would not leave them or forsake them. And then he said, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And as you might expect at this point in the gospel, the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. They just, they, 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 um, they come to quick conclusions. They respond, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. I mean, are we gonna, really going to risk our lives to wake somebody up from a nap? It seems unreasonable. And we're scared, and we don't think you should do that. What they don't understand is that Jesus is using a euphemism for death. Okay. Scripture is full of euphemisms for death, right? And he, and it's a wonderful euphemism because it's gentle, right? He's using a gentle expression to describe his friend's death. And he's using a euphemism also for the resurrection. He's going to awaken Lazarus out of, this, out of sleep. The disciples were always doing this. Jesus speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and they think that he... He means they ran out of bread. 
right? He speaks of food to eat that they don't know about, and they think he's speaking of literal food. Happens again and again, and it shows the great patience that Jesus had in putting up with ignorant little minds. Very gracious, very kind. But think about this for a moment. What a joy that death is spoken of by our Savior as merely falling asleep. Isn't that wonderful? It is an expression that is possible because of the reality of the resurrection. Death is no annihilation. Jesus would not have spoken of it as sleep if it were annihilation. Right? Ryle says, like sleepers, we lie down to rise again. And Scripture speaks of death as sleep all over the place. Deuteronomy 31.16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. You're going to lie down. Matthew 27, 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Acts 13, 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, literally, if her husband falls asleep, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so this, this euphemism is so frequent in Scripture, the disciples should have gotten it. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. And this, this was not a good day for the disciples. Now, the description is such a glory, though, it conveys the sense that death is not final, that it is, in fact, death is a good thing. Just as sleep is a good thing that gives us strength for the next day. Yes, death is an enemy that will be defeated, but for those who are in Christ, to die is gain. It's a good thing. Did you know that the word cemetery means sleeping place? From the Greek koimaterion sleeping place from the verb uh, to sleep. So one day God will awaken all those who have fallen asleep and those who fall asleep without faith in Christ will wish they could literally fall asleep to get some relief from the battering justice of God. Those who fall asleep with faith in Christ will go from comfort to comfort. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Amen? Jesus then, Jesus then in our passage has mercy on the ignorant disciples and speaks explicitly of what he intends. Lazarus is dead. He's dead, guys. <laughs> and their minds must have been clicking at that point, making connections. Suddenly, his talking of sleep would have made sense to them. 
But what did he mean by awaken him from sleep? You know, they would have been going, what does he mean then? Okay, if he's dead, what does he mean by awaken him from sleep? And then he says, verse 15, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying this, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him when he was sick because you will see a miracle and you will believe. Right? Your faith will deepen because of what your eyes see. He's not glad Lazarus is dead. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's going to weep. He's not glad that he's dead. He's grieved at that. But nevertheless, Jesus is glad for the opportunity that his death will give to demonstrate his power over death. Even over death. Now, isn't it beautiful that Jesus then says, but let us go to him. Let us go to Lazarus. Lazarus isn't dead, yet he's, he's speaking of him as if he still is. And he does still live, right? That is the case with all who die. We struggle to put the body in the ground, but that does not at all mean that the soul does not live on and that what God has created is in any way destroyed. For believer and unbeliever, there is this teaching of Scripture. Each person, body and soul, will live forever. Two different destinations based upon their union with Christ, but nonetheless, there is a sense in which we can speak of everybody always in the present tense. Anybody who has always lived is living now. And then one final verse that I'd like to look at. Into this scene comes Thomas. Who is also called Didymus. One of the twelve apostles. Now all of my children have Bible names, as you know. Our, and our children have birthdays also as you know. We read a passage from the scripture that has to do with their namesake. This is the, this is the passage we read on Thomas's birthday. Now, why do we read this passage? Because we hope it shapes our children and gives them some sort of pattern to follow. Okay, that's why we do it. Very simple. Now, what you don't, may not know about our Thomas, since he's a teenager now, he, Thomas, is our go-along buddy. We always call him the go-along buddy. He's embarrassed by it now, but it's his glory. It was his glory. He always wanted to go along with the other kids and play what they were playing. Um, he was always content to be a companion of others and be an assistant to others. Um, and that's something I hope will, will always mark your life, Thomas and that you would be a companion, a good friend, a go-along buddy for others. And I trust God will get him through these difficult years of adolescence, put that in his heart. But Thomas the Apostle was a go-along buddy. The verse says this, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Well, I always, I always hear it that way, Well, let us go, you know. Let us go also go so that we may die with him. 
What's wonderful, wonderful about the passage is that the Apostle Thomas is sort of misunderstanding what Jesus said, but that misunderstanding that they were going to their deaths does not inhibit his faith. In fact, it amplifies his faith, right? He, it seems, believes that Jesus has just been telling them that they had to go to Judea and they were going to die, right? They're going to die. And he's like, all right, let's roll. Let's go. Jesus, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it with you. He sees everything as bleak, right? We're going to die. Riddled with fear, and yet he's, he's ready to plow ahead. Given his misunderstanding of what Jesus means, his willingness to go along reveals his, his loyalty, his faith. He's a good friend to Jesus. He didn't understand the earlier proverb that Jesus taught them. If he had, he would not have considered their move to Judea as a death trap. Nonetheless, he's tightening up his sandals for the trip. Thomas is willing to die with and for Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. Now, having said that, Calvin and Ryle come to the conclusion that this bleak outlook by Thomas is a character flaw. <laughs> and undoubtedly it is. He, he had misunderstood Jesus' words and went to the worst possible scenario, death and destruction. And the application they make out of that, the application that Ryle and Calvin then bring into their comment on this, is that when we come to Christ, there is radical change, but nonetheless, our natural temperaments often persist. Right? Radical change and regeneration, and yet our natural temperaments, just naturally how we are, often stays very, very similar to the end of our lives. Ryle says the sanguine do not altogether cease to be sanguine, nor the desponding to be desponding when they pass from death to life and become true Christians. They show us that we must make large allowances for natural temperament in forming our estimate of individual Christians. And then he makes this statement that I think is very important. Listen to this. We must not expect all God's children to be exactly one and the same. We may not have the cheerfulness of one brother or the fiery zeal of another, or the gentleness of another. But if grace reigns within us, and we know what repentance and faith are by experience, we shall stand on the right hand in the great day. Right? To that I add this. Right? To his, his don't expect all of God's children to be the same way. Right? To that I add this. First, to caution. What Ryle states is not a reason to avoid seeking to change your natural temperaments, which may involve sin. Okay? Shy people sin by being shy. Right? Zealous people shy by being extroverts. Right? That can lead to sin. And so there are ways that even those characteristics need to be brought under the blood of Christ and honed and do all that. 
And so repent of your, your despondency, repent of your lack of zeal, repent of your lack of gentleness, fight against your aggressiveness, fight against your immobile shyness. Whatever is sin should be quashed. But also this, do not judge others by what comes naturally to you. Don't do that. Don't judge others by what comes naturally to you. You think your natural temperament is the way everybody should be. <laughs> we like to think the gifts we are given by God are the only important gifts. So the teacher thinks everybody should be able to teach. And the one who with faith despises the one who hasn't much faith. And the one who is hospitable wonders at the inhospitableness of everybody else. Right? It's hard for us to recognize the gifts of others. And so be gracious toward those with different character, different temperament, different gifts when they have the very same faith as you. They got the big things right. They got the big things in common with you. Be gracious in the rest. This is very hard, right? How do we know it's very hard? Because scriptures are constantly telling us not to do this, right? For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Right? So, so don't despise others with different temperaments, but examine your own temperament to see what is good and what is sinful. There is sin in all of our temperaments, right? And we, we can repent of that. And God does move us and sanctify us and make us holy. And ultimately, the goal is to what? To imitate Christ. So study his temperaments. Study his actions. Study his works. Study his faith, as we see in this passage. 